All right. Welcome to Gay Men Going Deeper, a podcast about personal development, sexuality, and mental health. Today, I'm your host, Callan Brecken, and I am joined by very special guest, Raymond Johnson Brown. Raymond uses they, them pronouns and is a two-spirited, genderless, queer, ethnic anomaly ignited by the opportunity to work towards collective healing through courageous conversations. They're a leader in Indigenous wellness and are passionate about creating community connections from for marginalized groups. Today, we're going to be talking about all sorts of amazing things, but the main point is going to be community inclusion. This podcast and YouTube channel are listener and viewer supported. If you enjoy what we're creating, you can support us by subscribing to the early access option on Apple Podcasts and gain early access to new episodes. All your support helps us to continue making great content for you and supporting the community, and we thank you in advance. So welcome to the show, Raymond. So happy to have you. Thank you for joining us. No, thank you for having me. I'm always excited by the opportunity to have deeper conversations. And I think as, as, as queer folks, we don't necessarily always go into the deeper stuff. And so I'm really valuable that you have this. I'm really grateful that you have this space. Amazing. Well, thank you. I'm very excited to dive into the conversation with you today. So how about we start off with who you are and a little bit of your history and the work that you do? Yeah, that's great. Uh, who am I? That's a question I ask myself every day when I wake up. Who am I today? Who am I showing up as and, and how am I showing up? But um, I, I'm, I'm really grateful. And I wanted to touch on in my intro, this word ethnic anomaly. And the reason why I use that uh, is because my mother is an Afro Mi'kmaq woman. Um, and then my father is European. And I remember growing up, a lot of folks wanted to put me in this or that either or or recognizing I also have a ton of white passing privilege in this work. And so uh, I landed on ethnic anomaly a couple of years ago because that's a blend of it all. And it's not really, it's not really any one thing. It's an amalgamation of all things. So uh, I just wanted to touch on that as a first thing for folks who might be like, what is that? Um, but for me, who I am, I, I call myself a modern day Hannah Montana. Uh, I get the opportunity to, to do indigenous wellness work uh, here in BC provincially, supporting service providers and providing culturally safe care, bringing uh, ceremony back into just the regular work day um, through a place called Foundry BC. So I get to lead that amazing Indigenous wellness work. And then on the other side, I still have an amazing career as a professional dancer. So I get to travel around, get to dance and film and TV. And so I, I really get the best of both worlds. <laughs> nice. Cool. So we're going to lead down um, uh, less of the dance. We'll do that maybe another time. But today we're going to focus on a lot of the other work that you've done. And we're going to start off with this question of how do you think people are missing the mark when it comes to inclusivity for racialized folks? I, I think about this question a lot. And I think my answer changes depending on the time. But the biggest, I think, flaw in action is finding a right way or saying that there is a right path. Um, so, for example, I've seen folks who would say, well, my Indigenous friend said that two-spirit identity means this. And therefore, when I say a two-spirit identity means this, I am now invalid. And so what happens is you've got this person of privilege who has now demeaned my experience as a two-spirit person and limited my experience based on one engagement with somebody else. And so when I think of how we miss the mark, it's 
using that binary black or white, this or that, right or wrong kind of thinking, and then using that to justify our actions. So it's, 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 we have to sit in, in a bit of that, that nuance and we have to be able to just ask folks, Hey, how do you choose to identify? What does this mean to you? We have to ask folks questions, but more often than not, people want to live in that safety net of understanding. And so they, they make decisions or they make actions based on this or that. Mm -hmm. And that's something I think that we've just been built into that's we've been conditioned from from all of our earliest education from growing up in this in this country here on turtle island it's yeah it, it per, it's it, it it's through all experiences we're always trying to fit into boxes and categorize humanity and it's one of the things the biggest flaws of the uh, of understanding how to really be inclusive because mm-hmm. in and of itself we are aiming to make as much space as we can for absolutely everyone. And right. so that means that we have to get messy sometimes. I always say, go ahead, get messy, because it is messy. We are messy. Human beings are messy and complex beings. And we have to be okay with that. We have to find peace within that. And I think when we can find it in ourselves, then we can give that to other people and other identities. I was just going to say, actually, the question that I wrote down is, do you think that that kind of interaction when somebody says, oh, well, my friend this or this person said that is, do you think there's a fear of being wrong and that they're like, look, I've done my work and now I don't want to be wrong anymore because it makes me uncomfortable to get messy. Do you think that that has a part to play? Yeah, because I mean, you, you we grew up celebrated for winning and doing things right. You go to school, you, you want to do good so that you can do well to continue to thrive and in the world. So yeah, nobody wants to be wrong, but wrong is actually the right answer. And I think that that's like the paradigm shift that I think I encourage folks to really sit into is that's, that's the missing purpose. That's the missing point, I think, right there. Mm-hmm. So how can somebody engaging in this kind of conversation, what would have been a better interaction in that one instance when the person's like, oh, well, my friend said this, what would have been a better choice for them to make in that moment? I, I think it's okay to say, I heard that this person who shares in an identity like yours, that they said X, Y, Z, but what does that look like for you? And then it engages this really curious conversation and of course, I always say at the forefront of any engagement like that, like it's, it's, I think it's interwoven into all of our Indigenous teachings is this idea of relationship first. So I always say I wouldn't just go to like a stranger and be like, hey, tell me about what it means to be a trans woman, right? Because there's not that foundational relationship that starts that relationship. So then we've got a wealth of conflict that can occur in that, that space. But, you know, if it's someone you have a relationship, I would say, get curious and share what you know. Say, hey, I actually heard this and I thought this was really interesting. And again, what does that mean for you? And allow that person's space to show up as they are and allow your relationship to grow closer and your knowledge to be expanded of what non-binary can mean, what uh, a two-spirit person can mean. Nice. I love that. And yes, curiosity. We always say on this podcast, like lead with curiosity because it just opens the doors to everything when you're curious and open to it. So how has your lived experience inspired the work that you do now in this field? 
<sighs> That's a, it's a big question because, you know, my entire existence has been shaped by the systems that have had power over me growing up. So I often share, uh, so my mom was a survivor of the Nova Scotia Home for Colored Children. And for those who don't know, this was where a lot of mixed and African kids went in Nova Scotia um, when they were, went into care. In this home, there was all sorts of abuse, sexual, physical abuse, emotional and mental abuse, and really horrific conditions. And so that earliest touch point is what my mom survived and came through. So when I came into the world, my mother was deep in alcoholism as a, a form of self-medicating and coping with all of that trauma and all of that. Can we swear? Shit. Yeah. Oh, yeah. Oh, yeah. This is a swearing podcast. We have that button turned on. Yep. Right. <laughs> So with all that shit that she had to go through and so, and then welcomes me into this world. And so when I was 10 and she went on a path to recovery, uh, I actually went into the foster care system. So again, another moment in my, my experience, my family's experience where we're touched by a system that we, again, was, everything was done for us, but nothing was done with us from, I actually will say though, shout out to the Browns who were my foster family. They obviously, my last name is hyphenated with their name. They were a foundational part, part of how I was able to get to where I am now. But again, the, the systems that a foster care, if something happened, a conflict happened, I was taken into uh, a stabilization program at a group home, just taken from my home and put here for X amount of days. It was quite regimented and I was never a part of the conversation. And so when I, when you ask the question of like, what is my lived experience? The biggest piece for me is that every service I provide, all of the work that we do with my work at Foundry is engaged in community first and that the communities actually are defining how the services look and that there is space because my work is provincial is there space for each community to show up as they are? Because of course, you know, I'm here in Vancouver, I go over to Richmond, the community looks different. And though it's, it's 30 you know, minutes away, the community looks different and the centers that support young people need to be reflective of that. And I'm sure you can say the same for Ontario, I'm like Ontario, Toronto, then you go out to like Scarborough, is that far? Scarborough, Mississauga. Yeah. 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 Right. Like it's, it's, there is, a, you see when you go to those places, there is a distinct community and there has to be space for, there has to be space for nuance, for discomfort. The thing that I will always probably, that'll be the hashtag for the episode. A hashtag uh, discomfort. Yeah. And people will be like, what is that? And it, but discomfort as a positive in your experience, not a, a, a negative, not a detriment. Yes. Exactly. Getting comfortable with being uncomfortable because that's where we grow, right? That's where the, the, that's where the space we grow in is. And that's, yeah. So that's, I say when that lived experience around systems has really, really navigated so much for me and gotten me, I think, to the place that I am uh, in this world and, and having those courageous conversations. I remember being in, in junior high school, like I was the kid, I didn't really have any friends. I remember in junior high, I was called, um, instead of RJ, because um, I usually go by RJ, they, they called me Fat J and R Gay. And then they just mixed it together and they said Fat Gay. So that will one day be the title of my memoir. Um, uh, but, but why I say that is I remember being this kid who just like went around and like 
hugged people in the hallways and like was awkward and random. And they felt a lot of shame for a long time about how extroverted and outgoing I was. And then I realized that that very energy I was building created now who I am, where I go into organizations and I'm like, this is actually really unhealthy. This is not going to build a better future. This is causing a lot of harm to communities. So it's interesting now at 31 to look back at that version of myself and not knowing this or that, but then other folks coming in and shaming me for behaving in this way that was outside of the box. And then me internalizing all that shame and then coming out of it saying, wait a minute, no, this is a strength and I need to hone in on that. And so that, yeah, is just a really, I don't know where that memory came from, but it just, just popped up and said, hey, we're going to tell it now. We're here. We're here. So I'm curious about your work with Foundry. What does that work look like? That's a great question. It, I, I love blank canvases in a lot of ways because that creates not only for me, but then everyone who works on, on the Indigenous wellness team and, and JEDI work, which justice, equity, diversity, and inclusion, it allows us to create a path forward that makes sense for us. And so um, one of the things in that things that we do within that work is we, we provide what's called journey to cash. And so cash stands for cultural agility, safety, and humility. And we call it journey to cash because we recognize that, again, we can't prescribe exactly what everything is going to look like, but we can invite folks on a path or a journey together. So when we talk about cultural agility, cultural agility is the ability to be responsive. So like I said in that earlier example of, of shifting the game uh, in that conversation of, hey, my friend, instead of in that moment when we're having a conversation, if we bring an idea up to someone and that doesn't work for the other person, we can then be responsive and say, okay, well, what does work? Instead of having a clear path forward, I think when you look at like a lot of clinicians and, and, and mental health professionals, there's a, a path sometimes to how a therapeutic or helping relationship should look. And so cultural agility is about starting in a space that maybe feels comfortable for you, but recognizing that that might completely change and being agile and, and working through that. The other piece is safety. And I love safety because safety is the, the outcome, the outcome based on the engagement. So does the person that you're providing a service to actually feel safe? And we can never prescribe safety because what's safe for me and what's safe for even you is going to look very different. And it's also going to change. There are words, you know, things that I, I find as I grow older that I really get uncomfortable by. I never used to care if someone called me or referred to me as sir, for example, but now I really get uncomfortable. Or if a, a person says like, hey man, what's up? Those really gendered terms quite make me really uncomfortable, but they weren't always that way. I didn't feel that way maybe in my early twenties. So it's important, I think, to be aware of cultural safety and that it can change and it can continue to evolve. So there needs to be that foundation of relationship to allow that. And then the last piece is humility, which is my favorite because it's about me. It's internal work. These helping relationships are transformative. A lot of uh, service providers think that 
it's it's about me helping you and I'm here and you're there and I want to help you get here. But instead, it's about rebalancing and finding that balance in that helping relationship. And it can be valuable for both people. And so that humility is that, hey, what are my biases? What are some of the things I were, was taught maybe in my schooling or in my work experience through a supervisor that doesn't resonate anymore for me or doesn't work in my practice and asking those questions? So introducing and then following up with centers and service providers, that's really a big piece of, I think, the work that I get to do and, and that I've done. And yeah, that's nice. Nice. Love it. I love all that. It's so fantastic. So this is something that kind of came up earlier in the beginning of the conversation and it is intersectionality of like your life and who you are. So can you explain a little bit more about what intersectionality is for those listening who might have kind of no idea what it is? Yeah. So intersectionality, we're, we're talking about the intersection of marginalized identities, recognizing when we look at, say, the queer community, there is a, a high percentage of focus on, on white gay men. That is just a reality. And, and we have to acknowledge that in order to move forward. But what we see is that being queer is a marginalized identity, being gay or however you choose to identify under the gender and sexually diverse umbrella is a marginalized identity. But then we've got other systems of oppression, like if you were Black. So if you are a Black trans woman, we see what continues to happen in America and even the hate that happens in Canada. I don't ever want to isolate America as a, you know, as much as those deaths are very significant, there is still harm happening. And though it might not be as finite as what happens in America, it still exists here. There are still um, harms being done. And when we look at Indigenous trans women and two-spirit identities that are, are dying here, like it's, 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 it's obscene and I, I can't even believe that it's a reality. But when we talk about intersectionality, we're talking about how those intersections of marginalized identity further add to an individual's experience and further push them away from being able to really live a, a good life, whatever that good life looks like for them. Nice. Well, thank you very much for that, uh, that explanation so that people can understand what's going on. And you kind of said in there about, you know, this is white gay. Um, so what are some of the ways that the queer community has contributed and participated in these systems of harm? And how can we go about starting to change them? We all know that change doesn't happen overnight and that it's going to take a while. But what are kind of some of the things uh, that we can do? So what are the, some of the ways that there's been harm. And then what are some of the ways that we can kind of work on it? Mm -hmm. I think it's interesting. Some of the, I think some of the ways that we've been harmed is the, is the lack of engagement. Like we talk about a community inclusion, um, you know, five years ago, or I would say, yeah, I would say five years ago, you know, you'd look at a pride poster and it was always like white gay men with fit bodies and that was the party. And then you go to, the, and it's always a party, right? And I'm, I will never shame someone who wants to party. I love to party. I love to socialize. I think that's such an important aspect of a queer identity. But in that, nobody was asking the question of like, wait a minute, who's not at the table? Who's who's not being represented here? And so I think some of the, the biggest harms are that those early early pioneers is, is there was a missing space for those other identities to be considered at the same level. Um, and I think that is really where the, the harm was done. And I, I don't want to say I, I get it. I get it in the sense that they were just fighting to 
have a measure of acceptance for their own self. So I understand that the humanity of that, but in that, that accept, hyper focus on self negated the actual breadth of the whole community being represented. And, and if we amplified and worked collaboratively together and co-created something, I think we might be in a different space now. And I think where we're working, a lot of folks who work in systems now, we're starting to go down that path. And, and when I think of, you know, the kind of what a path forward, what could or what does, you know, a path forward look like, I, I, I love the, I think it was a Tide commercial, the go ahead, get messy, or maybe it was sunlight, I don't know. But I, I, it sticks with me and I say it all the time because we're so, I think we're taught to like, we're taught to be right, we're taught to be right or wrong, black or white, and we're never taught to sit in the messiness sometimes to go into a situation and say the wrong thing and then have a conversation about how we can do better. So I, a lot of people talked, I don't know if you know, you've heard that creating a safe space was a big buzzword. And I was like, there is no safe space. It can't, it can't exist because safety shifts and evolves as we shift and evolve as nature and the world shifts and evolves, but we can create accountable spaces. And so creating those accountable spaces means, again, starting with the foundation of relationship with the individual or the group, whatever that looks like, then we can have accountability whereby that individual has the safety, the, the components of safety individually to be able to speak up should harm occur. And then on that end, then there can be a, a collaborative and I, this is another indigenous teaching I always go to is that indigenous law, it was really built on the restoration of balance within the relationships. A lot of um, Western law, as we know, is, is crime and, and crime and punishment, right? The, the crime and then you have to get this fine. And that's how the system is built. Uh, eye for an eye, you know, I, you've done me wrong. Whereas indigenous law and, and peers teachings were about restoring balance, restoring the relationship between the people. So having a, a process that works for that group that is accountable. And then if harm is done, then there is this co-created restoration of balance, restoration of the relationship between the individuals impacted and harmed. And then we move forward. And it sounds very fairy tale. Sometimes I'm like, oh, it sounds so idealistic. But I mean, everything in this experience is made up. Like we, all of this, this whole human experience is made up. Someone just made up those laws. Someone just made up those things. So if you can just make up those things, I can also make up a reality where we see equity at the forefront, inclusion at the forefront, anti-racism as at the front. So yes. Yeah. <laughs> nice. I was, I heard in there kind of like, we need to go from like a me mentality to a we mentality. Yeah. Not just thinking of the self and the self's experience, because that has definitely been a lot of the world's experience. And I think we are going through kind of that shift of everybody's really self-internalized and focused. And I think we are now, but we're doing it in a very different way than we did before. We're doing it in a much more of like, well, what does this mean for me? What does this mean about me? Like, what's that experience in regards to the outside experience? And how can we become more of a we inclusion instead of just a me? And I don't really care about everybody else. Mm -hmm. Well, we're, I mean, and again, I don't want to go into the, the path of capitalism, but the idea, the success of capitalism thrives off the individual making choices for themselves. The idea of the, the nuclear family of if every family in an apartment building has one screwdriver, capitalism 
for us. But what if the building had one room with a screwdriver that people could use as they needed it? Capitalism, it plummets. And so it's, it's, it's really interesting. And I almost say it's like, not even me or we, but like, can we say me, we? That's it. <laughs> and I say that because I'm conscious that just like when I talk about cultural safety and humility, like they both must coexist. And when you work collaboratively, though, towards the we, internally, you get the me. And it's mm-hmm. this this push and pull divide. And you're always kind of playing in the tension. Um, yeah, but it's because- a- I was going to say, because you're only ever going to know your full true experience. You're never really going to ever live somebody else's experience because you can't be inside of their consciousness. And so it's like everything you do, everything you experience is from your perspective. And then the same is for everybody else. And then there's always this space in between this gray space where things get messy or where things should get messy. Um, And I want to say something about, you know, providing that, not the safe space you said, but like that kind of like, space where people can get messy and do those things and to say the wrong thing what if there's people out there who are saying well I want to do that or I have done that and then I've like gotten canceled or people have like turned on me how does that experience speak to trying to create on one side you have this openness that you want to create but then on the other side you have people who yell so loudly if somebody gets it wrong and you're like it's kind of working against what we actually want here yeah yeah I think, you know, I, I love my community. I love the gender and sexually diverse community. Um, but again, coming back to the me, we, there is a tendency and a very right tendency to feel, if, imagine, I think of the idea of every day you've been misgendered or not your authentic self. And finally you've accepted that. And then you continue to hear people misgender you. And that is, it, it, it would build a rage in me. I, I, I feel that rage sometimes. And, and I, I've heard so, but there is a piece there of healing that we must do as queer people individually, because things like cancel culture are, they're quick. My critique of cancel culture is not about the conversation. I'm happy that we have conversations um, and that we hold people accountable. I am 100% for that. But what I think happens is, folks just grab to something that happened, react quickly, cancel the person, and then it's over. That person's life has completely been destroyed and we're on to the next, right? We, but again, when we talk about that indigenous piece around restoration of, of balance, even though that individual may have caused harm at a time, in, in their perspective, they may or may not have known that that was harmful, or when we look back at their, their childhood, their upbringing, there's so much trauma and so many things that they have yet to unpack. So that person is still a human being and needs to be healed. So I guess my big picture is that on both ends of those situations, healing work needs to always happen. I think for me, I have got my somatic therapist. I've got my talk therapist. I absolutely love it. Plus I have my coaches that I work with um, and I'm always having these conversations, but in, in that regard, the reality is because we're such a traumatized world, a traumatized society, um, it's going to happen. There is, someone might cancel you. Someone might, um, you know, get upset and get angry. Um, but I think that if we each individually work on our own healing as part of the process, I think we're gonna be able to work together and create a better world in the future. But again, this is where we're at. We are going to be hurt. And I think reminding ourselves in that 
when we do doing our best, but then also saying, you know what, I am not going to have all of the right answers. And that that person's experience shows me more about them than it does about me. Um, and so if I hear someone, if I misgendered someone and they got really upset with me, instead of apologizing or, and like being, oh my God, I'm so sorry, da, 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 I'd rather take a second to be like, is there anything I can do? Like, is there something I can do better? You know, and also being like, that person has probably been through so much and it's not about me, it's about them. And yeah, maybe there's nothing I can do. We can't do everything too. Like there's, there's so many, I think, spaces for, for it. And it's all going to happen as we work towards collective healing. All these pieces are, are going to come up. People are going to be triggered. People are going to be, or activated is a word I've tried to use more often than trigger. Yeah. The word tr- is triggering sort of <laughs> <laughs> I love, so but I, <laughs> no, I love what you said because I wrote down before you said it that we need to work on ourselves like heal ourselves in order to heal the collective it's not about working outside there it's about working inside here and the more you do inside the more it'll reflect on the outside and that if more people had that opportunity in order to do that because I recognize that it is a privilege in order to be able to have access to a lot of that but the more people can do that the more that that'll be accessible to everybody else 100 yeah so I love that I love it great so what could a path forward look like to create an equitable world or a more equitable world? Mm-hmm. I love uh, Albert or Albert Marshall, sorry, an elder um, who's Mi'kmaq who coined the term two-eyed seeing. And two-eyed seeing in essence is taking the strengths of Western pathways of knowledge and working them alongside indigenous pathways of knowledge and together the two go hand in hand and and create that path forward together and often when i share that a lot of folks who aren't indigenous or maybe aren't white or or western or european say well wait a minute what about me well i'm not considered in that because it's this or that but when we look at the core of indigeneity and indigenous life and teachings we're talking about making space for all of those races, all of those folks to show up. Um, you know, a Western pathway would say there's only one truth, whereas an indigenous pathway would say there's multiple truths. When we look across Turtle Island, there are so many distinct First Nations, Métis Nations, Inuit. There's so many folks with different unique stories. And so even though we have some universal teachings, there is still distinction between each nation, whether that's in language, um, customs, traditions, art, so many different things. So, but moving forward from a two-eyed seeing approach, we actually make space for all those other identities to show up and be at the forefront of the movement. I love that. It's very like, you know, take everything into account. Don't just look at your lane, you know? Yeah. So applying that to like the greater community and going back to like, you know, the cisgendered white guys, which I very much am a cisgendered white guy. I get it. I know it. Um, How can we do our part to create more of this space and to Mm -hmm. open this up? Mm -hmm. I think it's it's going back to me. We (laughs) I think uh, I think a part of it is is self-exploration. unpacking your own uh, biases? Is there, is there thoughts or stereotypes that you may have towards other folks? You know, we look at, we still see racism interwoven in Grinder, for example, you know, no, and, and body, like no fats, no femmes, no Asians is like a, a term everyone knows that they just made a joke of in that movie Fire Island. 
and it just shows how deeply rooted those things are. So I think the first part is a self-exploration of what are my own biases? What are my own stereotypes? What are my own problematic ways I show up in the world? And how can I change that? And I think then on the other end is what is the action I'm going to take? So maybe if it, it could be as simple as grinder. I've seen some friends who call the bitches out and it's like, hey, what you're saying is problematic. And I say, well, it's just a preference. Like, well, no, let's talk about that. And then it, it creates really good conversations. So I, for those folks, I encourage them to have courageous conversations. And in the spaces where we are not as gender and sexually diverse people or marginalized identities, you know, if, if you are in a group of friends who are all white cisgender gay men and you're making a, a racist joke, but you think it's okay because no Asian folks are there, no, it's saying, hey, actually, that's not funny. That's problematic. And that continues to feed into this stereotype. And it's our job in this space to do better. So whenever there's not a person or an identity at the table, making sure that you are finding space to uphold and, and, and act and advocate for those that aren't there. And on top of that, also bringing them in. So, for example, there's something that's happening here in BC um, where, where performers are hired and it's a predominantly white and indigenous cast. That's it. Whereas we know that there are drag artists of all identities. So when you're a performer or, or in these spaces, asking the club, the producer, hey, where is this identity? Why didn't we hire this? Right. It's, it's asking those questions. And we have to I don't think I think we're conflict. Is a conflict adverse? Maybe it's something. Yeah. 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 We're, yeah. we're, we're scared. We're of afraid of conflict. We're afraid of conflict, but like this very world was built on conflict. So it's always interesting to me of why we're so fearful of it when we, violence and conflict are actually what built the foundation of which we live on. But, um, you know, there's a way to do conflict in a healthy way. There's a, a really amazing book called Conflict is Not Abuse. And I absolutely love it because it talks about how do we have courageous conversations and sometimes go into conflict, but work together to co-create a solution. And again, back to my key takeaway, restoring the balance in those relationships. So yeah, I think those, those are some pretty big, pretty big tasks, but I think those are, are the ones for me. Nice. And, and so this is a lot of the work that you're doing with Foundry and moving things forward and kind of helping that rebalancing happening. Yeah. Like when it, like we touched on, you know, just a small project of the journey to cash that we do, but you know, there, we, we do a lot of anti-racism work. There's a lot of conflict resolution work. There's so many spaces that the work of indigenous wellness fits all centering around the, the values of, of two-eyed seeing and and creating co-creating this path forward um, for all. Nice, that's amazing. Well, this has been a very enlightening and eye-opening conversation, and I've really enjoyed it. And I hope our listeners have enjoyed it. If they wanted to know more about either yourself or Foundry, where could people find that information? Yeah, if you go online uh, on Instagram, there's Foundry at Foundry BC. Uh, also foundrybc.ca online to see all of our services and everything. Um, integrated youth services are across the province uh, provincially. So if most of the audience maybe is in say Ontario, um, it's actually just called integrated youth services there. Um, so there's, there's, there's spaces and those services across Canada and actually across the world we're learning. So um, wherever you're listening, 
look for integrated youth services. There's some amazing work happening and there's always space for, I think, folks to be a part of that work as well. Amazing. And where can people find out more about you? The, at the only RJJB. I've coined it on everything. So everywhere, <laughs> everywhere that you can find someone, if you use the only RJJB, you'll find and you'll get to see some of the dance stuff that you did, we didn't get to talk about, but that's okay. Uh, and we get to see some of the mental health work and the advocacy work. We get to, you get to see the whole spectrum of Raymond Jordan Johnson Brown. Amazing. Well, thank you so much for being on the podcast today. It's been fantastic. And I can't wait for people to join in on this conversation. Amazing. Thank you for having me. Ciao.